Hello! Welcome to Exploring the Divine Feminine. I'm your host, Ramona Sidaway, and this is episode number 16. We discuss all things related to the feminine divine, mostly within the context of the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Let's dive in. Most of us dream of a marriage that lasts for decades, rather than the few fickle months that we see in Hollywood. When we look at the marriage of Adam and Eve, it can be seen as nothing short of a love story. How? How can that be when they did not court nor date? So let's start at the beginning of the story. God is all-powerful. That we can all agree on. He can do anything. So why did he not create Adam and Eve at the same time? Why make one first, the male, and then after an unspecified time, create the female, his mate? God stated that man should not be alone. So why did he first create Adam as a creature alone, saving the animals that were roaming with him? One consequence we can see whether or not it was the purpose of God is that Adam, having two experiences to differentiate between that of living alone and that of living with Eve, that Adam quickly realized that if he lost Eve to the consequence of her eating the fruit, he would be even lonelier than before. For people are much lonelier after experiencing companionship than before they had that companionship. So people who, so widows experience a a lot deeper loneliness than before they were even married. Adam decided he would much rather follow Eve into the pain-riddled mortal world than to stay behind without her. Eden would no longer be paradise without Eve. Now, we know from Moses chapter 5 that after a time, both realized the blessings that came from the fall, from their individual and collective choice to partake of the fruit and leave Eden. While in the garden, they were not much more than glorified roommates. They did their own thing, had their own projects. We know this in part from the fact that the serpent easily found both of them alone when he offered the fruit. We see the depth of their partnership in Moses, working in the field, praying, worshiping, teaching the gospel to their children, hearing the voice of the Lord. All of these things were now done as a team, as partners, as a unit, as one. From their hard-learned lesson in the Garden of Eden, they knew that separate equaled death. From here on out, They were never going to be separated. To work on never allowing that forked tongue being to come between them to try to pull them apart again. The work, the pains, the sorrows, the trials, the joy, the children, all brought them together as one heart and one mind. Adam most likely would have been very content to stay in the garden forever. Things were good. But we learned the change that fatherhood and motherhood had on this couple. So we read in Moses, quote, Blessed be the name of God, for because of my transgression, my eyes are opened. And in this life, I shall have joy. And again in the flesh, I shall see God. 
And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed, and never should have known good and evil, and the joy of our redemption, and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. Close quote. So let's talk a little bit about what is love. In my book, We Are Adam, the partnership of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and what it means for you, in the last chapter, which is chapter 22, I talk about this very subject, about how objectively speaking, Adam and Eve were in an arranged marriage. There was literally no one else to choose from. And God literally chose for both of them. Now, from a Western standpoint, this is a very difficult concept, more so than in countries where marriages are arranged as a matter of course. Now, in the West, there's a powerful, quote, cult of romance, close quote. Now, this is spurned on by Hollywood messages that are so out of touch and so artificial that it has created an epidemic of disposable marriages. How can a woman compete with edited images and a man with unrealistic ideas of manhood? How can a couple relate to the happily ever after or the even more deceiving, there is no such thing as true monogamy. It is even being touted as unnatural and undesirable. We see that all the time in Hollywood and in movies and television shows. What dangerous messages we receive by the great and spacious building, by the courtiers of Babylon. One of the messages is that to really find one's own soul is through another, through the mythical soulmate. And if the fork-tongued media is to be believed, the soulmate is charismatic, handsome, adventurous, intense, beautiful. This is the antithesis of a human, normal, down-to-earth, day-to-day relationship and a thief to true joy and love. Adam and Eve most likely achieved what we call stirring the oatmeal kind of love. Now, the late Robert Johnson, who was a psychologist, he wrote this, quote, Stirring the oatmeal is a humble act, not exciting or thrilling, but it symbolizes a relatedness that brings love down to earth. It represents a willingness to share ordinary human life, to find meaning in the simple and romantic tasks earning a living, living within a budget, putting out the garbage, feeding the baby in the middle of the night. To stir the oatmeal means to find the relatedness, the value, even the beauty and simple and ordinary things, not to eternally demand a cosmic drama and entertainment or an extraordinary intensity and everything. Like the rice-hauling of the Zen monks, the spinning wheel of Gandhi, the tent making of St. Paul, it represents the discovery of the sacred in the midst of the humble and ordinary. Close quote. One of our root problems in confusing the being in love versus love relationship is centered around humility and meekness. 
Neatness is possessing a spiritual receptivity to learning both from the Holy Ghost and from other people. And other people definitely includes our spouse. Valerie Hudson Castler noted that, quote, the first utterance Adam made after God created him and Eve in the Garden of Eden was to declare Eve's equality with him, that they would be one flesh, close quote. Long-term marriages take patience, time, and commitment of Jesus Christ. So do you believe that husbands and wives could be best friends, even in an arranged marriage like Adam and Eve's? Even after the children arrive and the stresses of mount with making a living and working through differences of personalities, of quirks, of opinions, of backgrounds? The short answer, yes. Johnson said, quote, when a man and a woman are truly friends, they know each other's difficult points and weaknesses, but they are not inclined to stand in judgment on them. They are more concerned with helping each other and enjoying each other than they are with finding fault. They want to affirm rather than to judge. They don't coddle, but neither do they dwell on, on our inadequacies. Friends back each other up in the tough times, help each other with the sordid and the ordinary tasks of life. They don't impose impossible standards on each other. They don't ask for perfection, and they help each other rather than grind each other down with demands. What friendship does in a marriage, in a down-to-earth, stirring-the-oatmeal kind of relationship, it takes the artifici artificiality out and good riddance. Friendship replaces the impossible standards with something much more enduring, more real. God's template for marriage, one that he designed with Adam and Eve, was one that was meant for eternity, not one that was stress-free, conflict-free, love-free, friendship-free. Time did not exist in the garden when God brought these two together. Marriage, when God is a part of it, is meant for eternity. Quoting from my book, on page 183, I write, quote, Friends settle comfortably into the ordinary, looking forward to spending time together in a life filled with glorious uncertainty, wondrous imperfection, and magnificent flaws. The goal was never to see how to change one another, but how to best enjoy each other. Husbands and wives truly can be friends with one another, unafraid of the simple and ordinary. Close quote. So do you want more evidence, more proof that this mortal experience, this mortal marriage, this friendship, this partnership with the bill paying and cleaning and doing dishes and rocking feverish children in the middle of the night and mortgages and broken hearts and apologies can be, is meant to be holy? This mundane, mundane life is considered holy. The idea that we are working and progressing toward becoming more like our heavenly parents is amazing. Just the idea that it is possible is amazing. But let's look at the symbolism of the reverse, at the implications of a God, Jesus Christ, coming to earth and becoming human just to redeem it, to redeem us. It's enormous. As Johnson eloquently writes, it means that this physical world, 
this physical body, and this mundane life we lead on this earth are also holy. It means that our fellow human beings have their own intrinsic value. The physical, mundane, ordinary world has its own beauty, its own validity, and its own laws to be observed. The way to enlightenment, to soul, is not through the clouds, not by denying this earth. It is found within this mortal life, with the simplicity of our mundane tasks, in our relationships with ordinary people. Close quote. Wow. So let's not waste any more of our time here. For it's holy after all. Let's find that intrinsic joy and authenticity of the day-to-day -day living, the beauty of the pause between the breaths, and the warmth of the breath itself. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate all of my listeners. Have a wonderful, blessed day. And I pray that you will be able to find the stirring the oatmeal kind of friendship. Until next time.